Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's episode is Brendan Kyo. Uh, Brendan is, a, is an Australian academic and writer and kind of hobbyist game designer as well. It was a, a real thrill to, to talk to Brendan. Like, I mean, as as this show suggests, you know, I'm I'm very much a fan of kind of digging deep into a into a subject, and and Brendan does that incredibly. He's a really interesting, uh, articulate guy. And there is a lot of uh, literal and figurative beard stroking. <laughs> um, no, it was a really good chat. I really thoroughly enjoyed uh, talking to Brendan. Uh, also features uh, a dog, which is you know the first dog cameo in an episode of Checkpoints, which is very exciting. Um, as always, thanks for listening to the show. If this happens to be your first episode, welcome. Please do dig back into the archives. There's a ton of great chats with uh, amazing people. Uh, I always try and kind of theme the recommendations i don't always try i've just started doing it recently but uh, if you're into sort of the this kind of more academic discussion of, of games and kind of how they work and how much how they kind of engender uh, enjoyment and, and passion from the the player uh, i'd recommend episodes with um bennett foddy and chris totten david farrell who all kind of have a, a background in in academia and teaching of of game design um, but honestly, there's a, there's a treasure trove. Uh, please do dig back. Uh, if you enjoy the show, uh, please rate and review it on iTunes. I, that is definitely the best way of uh, helping the show out because it allows new people to discover it and it's very, very much appreciated. Or just, you know, share it around on social media, tell a friend, all that good stuff. Uh, if you really like the show, there's a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. If you have the, the money and the inclination, all donations are very gratefully received and go into making the show as good as it possibly can be um i don't really like i don't really do much in the way of kind of reward tiers or anything on patreon um it's just kind of you can pay some money if you like the show it's very much appreciated uh if people have ideas though for like stuff that they like or extra things from the show let me know i'll see what i can do uh you can contact the show at uh, checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or on twitter at checkpoint show or on Facebook, it's Checkpoints Podcast because it's very important to have consistent branding. Uh, thanks as always for downloading. Please subscribe. I'll be back next week as always with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. Well, let's do let's do the let's do the show then. So, I'll start with a formal introduction um, for the sake of, of occasion. So, Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for for coming on. If you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Yeah, um, yeah. Hi, I'm Brendan Keogh. I'm a what am I? I'm a lecturer in game design at SAE Creative Media Institute here in Brisbane and in, in Australia. Um, I'm a game critic and academic, so I write about games and research games for a living. Um, I say for a living, but teaching game design is actually what pays the bills. Uh, so I guess I do that for a living now. I got used to saying the other one. Um, 
my dog Harry just sat on my lap and has his face in my face. Hello, Harry. Um, half, but yeah, that's what I do. I write about and think about video games. Uh, yeah. As of this year, I've started making video games, but only in a really rough, hacky kind of figuring out Unity kind of way. Well, that's, I mean, I that's, everyone's doing that these days, aren't they? It's, uh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> but, no, it's, it's amazing. Really um, yeah. It's really interesting. Like, I, 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 I do kind of, I don't do as much research as I probably should with these episodes, but I was, I was looking through your site and you know, you've written quite a lot of kind of academic stuff about games. And it just occurred to me as I was looking through it, like that must be still like a really new field. Like, because I've, I've spoken to sort of various academics on the show before, like people like, uh, like Bennett Foddy, but his kind of, he, yeah. he did philosophy before he went into to game stuff. So is it, yeah. do you feel like you're kind of, not breaking new ground necessarily, but like, you know, on the, at the beginning of something. Um, or am I just wrong? Bit. No, um, no, it's pretty close. It, it's kind of more of like a second generation kind of thing. Um, so like game studies as a discipline, well, if, if it even is a discipline, has kind of been around since probably the very late nineties or early two thousands. Um, for people like Espinosa, Jesper Yule, um, Janet Murray, who was writing in the late nineties, um, a lot of people kind of started writing about games from a lot of very different academic backgrounds. So from media studies or literature studies or narratology or human computer interactions. And they all tried talking to each other using the same words, but for everyone, they meant different things. So it ended up just being a lot of fights and arguments for most of the early 2000s. That's what most um, academia so whole, is though, surely. Yeah. Just lots of arguments but, about the meanings of words. Sorry, yeah, I don't mean to trivialize it. Continue. No, 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 it absolutely is, but I'm um, just not usually it's more productive than this. Yeah. So there's the whole what some people know of as like the narratology versus ludology kind of fight that happened in early game studies. Um, coming through, so I'm like 30 years now, I finished, 30 years old now, I finished my PhD about two years ago. Um, so I'm kind of coming through as like an early career researcher now. Um, and it kind of feels less like something new and more like you have a first generation born after the war um, and kind of dealing with all these old fights and people being mad at each other and now you're just trying to write some research but there's always baggage attached to it strangely um i'm thinking about this a lot lately because last week was the um yearly probably the largest international game studies conference uh digital the digra digital games research yeah, association yeah, yeah. conference um sorry if you can hear a weird noise that's my dog eating my hand um but <laughs> that's good that's um, the first dog cameo we've had i think Right. Yeah, of course he has. He's got a lot of fans on Twitter, so he should enjoy this. Um, what was I saying? Yeah, so that big conference was last week in Melbourne, um, so I just came back from that. So I'm thinking a lot about these disciplinary things and how to grow it and all that at the moment. Well, let's uh, let's delve back first, though, Brandon, before we get up to date. Um, and if you can remember, what was your very first experience of a video game? First one I remember was is a space no yeah space invaders clone on my parents tandy 1000 um i don't know how like it took me ages to figure out what this computer was it was just a very old computer my parents owned i think my dad wrote his honors thesis on it um just and a glorified word this. processor essentially it wasn't used for anything yeah, else pretty really. much. um it had two disk drives one you put c drive in and one you put disk in to actually run other things which is ms dos kind of thing um and there's a 
you just put in different discs until you found .exe and you ran the thing, and sometimes it was a game. Um, I don't know where they got all these discs from. Like, I've never asked them this. Um, but there was one called, I, I think it was called, like, Star Commando or Space Commando, and it was just a, spa- a Space Invaders clone. Um, but I got a lot out of that. That was really good. Was that, like, your... Early- was that your first experience of a game, though, or was it like were you aware of them in kind of the wider culture? Um, God, man, that's taking me back. Um, no, I feel like that was my first encounter. I feel like my dad introduced me to video games. Like he wasn't, I don't think he was super into them, but like he had this cool computer he'd bought um, and had some games still on it and kind of showed them to me. So there was like a Star Wars, no, I keep saying Star Wars. There was a Space Invaders clone. Yeah. There was a, a, a Donkey Kong clone that was just called Kong. It wasn't very good. Um, the one I love the most was called Striker. It was like a side-scrolling, you were a helicopter, you controlled it for joystick and bombed the ground and stuff. I haven't, I haven't been able to find any of these games whenever I've tried Googling them in more recent years. So um, I could be making all of this up. I wonder if they were um, like homebrew stuff, yeah. like, you know, just, as you say, yeah, just cheap clones. Possibly. Yeah, one I've managed to find online was called Flightmare, um, which is great. It was kind of like this Mad Max-inspired thing. Um, and I found it on YouTube, finally. And it's this amazing... It's kind of got... Kind of like split-screen horizontally, and there's like a side view and a top view of your biplane. And you have to line up other biplanes and motorcycles and stuff in both views before you shoot them and not crash into them in both views. So it's like kind of 3D using front and side... No, top and side view. Oh, that's um, cool. And it was all like what's that color palette like where it's like pink and bright blue and black and white, whatever the color palette that is, the old one. Uh, and it was just these really jarring colors and amazing noises. Um, and it was called Flightmare, like Nightmare, but with flight. It was great. <laughs> I have really fond memories of that. That actually that has, that's come up on the show a couple of times. Um, Flightmare? Yeah, really? who mentioned it? Ed Key, the guy who made Proteus. Oh, wow. And Simon Byron, who's uh, one third of One Life Left. He works at Curve Digital. Um, there you go there you go it's because I, I make notes obviously as i go through and i've done enough episodes now that i can just if someone mentions right. something i can usually search for it yeah, um, and i shouldn't do it because it's distracting I've, I've broken the whole flow of the conversation there by pointing that out but um nevertheless no, you, it's interesting no, i'm just word. picturing you sitting there with like a whole spreadsheet and like <laughs> oh if only these connections and i've been thinking about that i'm hoping some fan game. of the show will like you like make tags so you can search for a game and then see everyone who's sort of, like had an, had an impact on or something but obviously i should Great. do that but i'm should. just imagining um <laughs> so th- did it have like a big impact on you though th- this game or was it just like another thing in in the house like a fun thing to play with um i guess like in any any one game maybe not like all like the computer definitely um, I mean, like, not in, like, a indie game of a movie, Phil Fish talking about sitting on his dad's lap and programming an Apple, whatever, yeah. that kind of story. Like, I never had that experience. But, like, just having this weird, weird box of computer and, like, chunking in the disks and just, like, constantly just trying to find things to run was kind of exploring them that way was kind of, real. I think, quite formative. Um, as well as... Um, I remember getting, like, a brick, breaking my dad's high score on the helicopter game, Striker, and deciding I was really good at video games. So I think that like kept an impact on me in terms of video games are a thing I'm good at, so I will keep playing video games. That's amazing. Um, so how, how did that kind yeah. of progress then as you got older? Did you get... Because I don't think there was a big console scene in Australia, right? It was mostly home computer stuff, so sort of similar to the UK. Um, I think during the... 
yeah so this, this would have been like very early 90s at this point um consoles definitely became a big thing in the 90s so i am actually primarily most of my video game experience is on consoles um growing up um we got a sega master system for christmas one year when i was so young i know you know there's that video on the internet of like the, the kid getting the nintendo 64 yeah, yeah, yeah. um like i've in my head, my, my brother was like that, but it was Sega Master System. Um, and, like, we had to explain to him that it wasn't his. Um, it was all of ours. Um, so I played a lot of – and I think our, my cousins had one, and I think I used to go to theirs and play Sonic the Hedgehog. When, well, when we visited, they lived quite far away. Um, like, the other side of the state, which I guess for the UK is, like, the other side of Europe or something. Yeah. Um, but um, – so like, and I remember my cousin teaching me how to jump sideways in Sonic, like start running, then press jump and don't let go of sideways. And I remember that as a very formative how to do things with a gamepad um, kind of experience. Um, but yeah, forever 90s, I was always, my main experience in video games was kind of always having the, like the hand-me-downs, I guess, of consoles. Um, you know, my parents never were like, we got to get the big fancy new computer. Yeah. Um, I don't think they're particularly well off either. Um, I was too young to know one way or the other, like, you know, my friend who lived in the larger house also had a Super Nintendo while I still had a um, Sega Master System. Um, eventually, I bought, like, a friend, not a friend's, a random kid's um, Super Nintendo when he was selling it so he could afford to buy a PlayStation. Um, so it probably wasn't until I was, like, a teenager with a job and disposable income that, and I bought a PlayStation 2, but I actually caught up. So most of the nights for me was kind of, playing older games and always feeling like i was slightly behind did you feel um, slighted by that um or were you just happy to be playing like were you kind of really like yeah. you know, lusting after these these bigger more powerful consoles probably a little bit like i definitely really enjoyed video games by that point it was probably um i mean it was probably more like anxiety of missing out or like yeah. when you're wearing the second hand clothes to school or whatever <laughs> um, i say that like all, all of all of our um, schools here have school uniforms, so that metaphor doesn't work. But I've watched enough American movies to, <laughs> to use that metaphor. Um, so, like, probably kind of like that. But um, but I had a lot of fun with them. We used to also just, like, you know, you could still rent video games from, you know, video stores at that point. Um, so, like, you used to just go to Video Easy or... I don't think Blockbuster ever existed in the small towns I grew up in. Video, like video Easy. Easy or That's a brilliant name yeah. for a video shop. Z-Y, video Easy. Good times. Uh, and just go in, rent a game. Um, I remember renting Doom on a place on not PlayStation on a Super Nintendo. Um, and sometimes, like one of the five people who actually worked there. This is in a really small town. Yeah. Um, actually knew the difference between an M-rated game and an MA-rated game. Uh, the difference being an M-rated game is recommended for people over 15 years old, and an MA-rated game is restricted to people over 15 years old. So essentially, you can't get a ga- an MA game out if you're under 15 in Australia. Um, so, like, one of the people actually cared when I was, like, eight, renting Doom out from Video Easy. So I, did, <laughs> so I used to take a handwritten note from my mum, signed from her, they used to let me, which I think was still illegal, but it worked. That's um, insane to think that, that Doom was, like, the the big bad video game. <laughs> like, that is going to warp young minds. Yeah. Um, terrified me, though. Like, Doom's a terrifying game, um, especially with some Nintendo version, because it's got really... I guess blunt light, blunt lighting. There's yeah. not a lot of subtlety in the lighting. Either it's on or it's off, so it's just really dark and terrifying. And there, were, there were rooms that um, I would just never go in. I would just be like, 
or like rooms that I knew there were enemies there somewhere and I'd just run through it and just like run to <laughs> an impressive. Um, even now, like I, I play, I replay Doom fairly regularly. I'm actually playing it right, not right now, but like I've been playing it this evening. Um, and like there are still rooms that like now I know where all the enemies are. They don't worry me as much, but um, like I still get a sense of dread walking into certain rooms because they're kind of for like the really scary rooms that I played as a kid. Why, why um, do you replay Doom so much? It's a really good game. <laughs> um, Doom's just like it's a spectacularly good game. Um, I guess the main reason I'm replaying it now is I've actually only ever played it on consoles. Um, and so I played it for Super Nintendo. The PlayStation port is spectacular. Like the PlayStation 1 version, it has Doom and Doom 2 on one disc. It doesn't really differentiate them. It's just 50-odd levels of Doom. Um, that just suddenly gets easier again halfway through. It's really weird. Um, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, so I'd only ever played on console and I kind of really wanted to see what, what was Doom actually meant to look like, like what's the PC version. Because like those old games, there's so many tiny changes from yeah. each port and each update or whatever. I'm like, there's so many little things that I don't know what actually does and doesn't exist in the original you know, PC proper version of Doom. Um, so I've got like, I think a colleague, a, a colleague at work helped me get it running on my MacBook using GZ Doom. Yeah, yeah. Um, so now I'm like, oh, I didn't know I could do that. So now I've got Doom running on my MacBook and I'm slowly working through all the original levels again. It's great. And is it like, I, I don't know. I mean, the reason I keep asking why you're doing this is because I have in my mind that you're, you know, you're an academic, you're a writer. So all there always has to be a reason for everything beyond just this, just a fun game. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess better reasons, I guess I'm increased. Well, I'm increasingly excited. That's a fine reason. I'm not judging you. No, no, I'm increasingly interested in kind of, visual styles of 90s video games which is probably just simply i'm getting older and i'm more aware of my own mortality and romanticizing about the decade i grew up in yeah um but also just i find the visual styles of games from the 90s just in that in that period of time before we had the computational power to just be you know photorealistic without really having to consider style at all uh, i find those games really fascinating there's just so many different types of games and so many different you know, ways to do perspective or scale and just color palettes. But I'm just increasingly wanting to look at games that came out in the 90s and just kind of reabsorb them through my eyeballs because they just look really spectacular, I think. Um, just some of the ways they try to render different kinds of situations and spaces and stuff is just things that no one really does anymore because yeah. you don't have to. I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's a weird one that because like there are some amazing sort of looking games from the nineties because of like these technical limitations. But I, I find a lot of stuff going back to it. It's just, it's painful. Like the, the Nintendo 64, especially um, aside from, I guess the Nintendo games, like I've, they're just, they're really, there's no pleasure in looking at any of those games. They're gross. Yeah. It's really, it's really hard, but like it's kind of so like how to look at art or how to look at, no, just let's just go of art. Like it's kind of a learned thing, right? You learn how to look at art. You learn how to evaluate what looks good and what looks less good. And different yeah. cultures kind of enculturate you into appreciating different types of art. Um, and in video game culture, we're very much enculturated to appreciate a certain level of technical fidelity, um, which isn't as simple as saying, "Oh, you're brainwashed; they actually look good" or anything like that. But like, it's hard to look at older games and see them as not ugly because like 
that's not how we know to look at video games, I guess. Um, and a lot of them, you're right, are just simply ugly, and a lot of them are terribly designed. Um, just not in ver- some were terribly designed of our own time, but some are just they didn't know things about design we know now and stuff like that. But like, yeah, I'm just trying really hard to teach myself to appreciate video game visuals, I guess, from a different perspective and yeah. I guess fidelity or high definition and all that and just trying to see what else was going on there. Um, yeah, I, I recently obtained a Nintendo 64. I never owned one growing up. I'm trying to play some stuff on it. Um, Mario 64 looks spectacular. Yeah, like, all, all of those games still look amazing. Um, Mischief Maker is less so. It, it's a weird one. I don't I don't understand what's going on there. Um <laughs> It's it's a very weird looking game. It's the flat oh, yeah. shaded polygons, like done right, they're amazing, and that's like that seems to be something that has yet to make a a kind of a comeback. Like nobody is doing that at the moment, and I'm sure it's not like I'm saying. I'm sure I've, I I don't make games. I'm sure it's not that easy or the, not that hard, rather. Um, but well, that's I'm sure it's to do it right. I'm sure is is still quite tricky. Yeah, totally. I think the hard thing now is actually like trying to make your game look old i think yeah Which, um, i mean i'm trying like i've been just i mean this isn't a game dev podcast i won't go on a massive tangent but i think i've been mucking around with unity a fair bit this year just trying to learn the ropes and i've decided i just want to do kind of really like but either pixel art or kind of like playstation one kind of looking stuff um and Unity's not built for that Unity's built to make games in 2017 and that's the kind of games that it defaults to making um so like Making an engine maker game look old is is really hard. It's, um, Gap in the market yeah. there, clearly. Yeah, I guess it's like game maker and stuff. But I'm one of those weirdos who doesn't own a PC, so and game makers kind of gone Windows only now for some reason. So that's that's not a solution for me. <laughs> so so but yeah, back to sort of like you know growing up with consoles and stuff. Like, did did you sort of take on games as like? part of your identity growing up like were you were you seeking them out or were they just a, a fun part of your your life um no it definitely became part of my identity i became you know i was self-identifying as a nerd and probably i don't i don't remember using the word gamer but if it existed i'm sure i definitely identified as that um i was buying official playstation 2 magazine a lot the australian one um i don't know like even back then, I knew official magazines were just advertising brochures, but for some reason, I still did it. Um, yes, and before that, actually, I don't think I bought magazines before that because I was poor. No, before that, I used to buy Disney Adventure, which is, I assume you have like the equivalent over there, but like kid magazines, right? Like, yeah, you buy them for checkouts. Um, I don't think Disney Adventure exists anymore, but it was one, and it used to have a section on video game reviews and cheats and stuff at the back. And I used to read all those and get really into that. Um, yeah, and you know, I talk about video games all the time at school with friends. Um, in hindsight, they're probably sick of talking about it, or they'd come over and I'd just want to play video <laughs> games. They'd probably actually want to go do something like go and find cow skulls in the paddock next door. Um, it's like growing Proper up in rural Australia. Stuff. Yeah, I'm really like breaking the rural Australia stereotype here. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it was definitely part of like what I did, like, if I had to write down for a school assignment, what are your hobbies? Video games would have been the top one, for sure. And what sort of, like, what what were your what were your games? Like, what were there any specific titles or types of games that really kind of pushed you over the edge and you were like, right, no, this is, this is for me, I love this? Um, I guess the main one, like, 
it's such a cliche. I hate this, but it would have to be probably Final Fantasy VII. I think I was in, I would have been in grade, in grade seven, like last year of primary school before we go into high school, um, down this way. Um, and I can't remember why I bought it. I think, no, I wasn't buying it. I was renting it. Of course I didn't have money. Um, I remember TV ads for it, which were kind of like, those kind of like montage of clips of full motion videos. Like it was an ad for a summer blockbuster. And I just remember this might not be the wording of the deep cinema ad voice being like the blockbuster of a summer of this summer isn't coming to a cinema near you. It's coming to your PlayStation. And I was like, well, what is that? Like I've never seen a game like that before, you know, with, I don't think I'd ever played a game with like full motion video and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm, at that point, when I saw the ad, I probably didn't have a PlayStation yet, so that idea was probably bizarre to me. Um, but then we got a PlayStation. It came down to a PlayStation or a Sega Saturn, um, and I was like, kept arguing that we should get a Sega Saturn, um, and my brothers won out, um, thankfully. <laughs> In the long run, that was probably for the best. Um, I, I just really wanted Time Crisis. Um, oh, yeah. Anyway, so um, I think Final Fantasy VII was probably a better long-term investment. Um, yeah, so I'd never seen a game like that before. I'd never played a JRPG. I don't even know if any of the other Final Fantasies had been released in Australia before that, or if they had, you know, they, were, they weren't in my small town. Um, so I wasn't sure why there was a number seven in this title. Like, I didn't, it didn't even cross my mind that it might be the seventh title in a series. I was just like, the name of the game is Final Fantasy VII for some reason. Um, and just, I just remember playing that for ages, like ages and ages and ages. And then six hours later, I was nearly at the end of Midgar and you end up on the world map. I'm like, how, how is this game still going? Like, I've never, and like all of a sudden you're just like, yeah, that whole, that whole city you just spent ages and ages in, like you have to rent the game out four times or whatever. It's just like, <laughs> that's just that little dot. And now you have a whole world. And like, I think it just, it just broke, broke my mind a little bit of the sheer size of that game. Um, then I met a, then I went to high school and met a couple of friends um, who also liked it, and we just kind of got ridiculously obsessed with this game um, for about six months. Like just spoke about nothing else, just this one game, um, as if it was Pokemon or something. I, I don't even know what we did in it. Like I had a stable <laughs> full of gold chocobos, and all my characters were level ninety nine. But like, yeah, you did everything like really, clearly. Yeah, but it's not like there was one hundred fifty Pokemon to catch or anything. So yeah. I, I don't know what I was doing with my time. And how Probably you did like. On. You were saying like you you argued with your brothers about it, so clearly they they played games as well. Like, how do you? What was the kind of the the console etiquette in a house with a bunch of brothers? Um, I think we had like generally there'd be like a twenty minute limit or forty minute twenty minutes you had to swap over or something. Um, there was three of us, so generally it was like twenty minutes swap over, twenty minutes swap over, twenty minutes swap over. Um, I was the oldest then. Okay, so you get priority. Yeah, let's go with that. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, a brother like 18 months younger than me, then the next brother down was probably another four years after that. So, you know, he was easier to push around. Um, <laughs> but we were the ones, me and the younger one probably were much more into video games than the middle one. Um, he would play a bit and just get bored and probably go do something much more meaningful of his life, like ride his bike with his friends or something, um, and just leave us two to keep playing. Um, but yeah, I think as we all got older, we were like, early high school we all had more pocket money so we'd buy different games and all yeah. play them but the console always lived in the lounge i don't think any of us had a game console in our bedrooms until much later in high school when we all had disposable income 
so how did you kind of like like did did this kind of continue as you got older so it, it, when you went away to to university and stuff for instance like was this still kind of part of your identity and i guess like did it ever occur to you that you could work in games in whatever fashion like clearly you read the magazines maybe that was a, an option yeah so through high school i definitely got more and more into it i like did it in grade 11 and 12 and all that um i was really enjoying what was it yeah it and japanese were my main two things and english in hindsight but at the time no one tells you you're allowed to like english so you just assume you hate english okay um because you're like that's a boring subject you have to do um but yeah when i went into university i started in a dual degree bachelor of it and bachelor of multimedia majoring in interactive entertainment which these days they would just call a bachelor of game design um but back then that was this is 2005 um you know you can't just put the word game in a degree title back then i guess it was still too weird so but did, was that did, what you were going there for though like at what point i guess did it occur to you that oh i should do i could do games like especially yeah, if someone growing uh, up on consoles because you, you don't necessarily see as much of the the back end of them yeah um it was mostly so i guess jumping forward and looking back with hindsight what i like 18 months later, I quit that degree. Um, but essentially, what I think happened was I really enjoyed video games at high school. They're a very kind of important part of my identity and I guess the main, the main form of popular culture I consumed. Um, at the same time, I really enjoyed writing. I really enjoyed you know, writing stories for class and writing stories in my own time. And I was doing all this. Um, and I kind of put two and two together in hindsight incorrectly that, well, I like writing and I like playing video games, so I should go design video games because video games are stories or whatever. Um, so when I did that and then kind of realized, and then 18 months later dropped that, um, went through everyone's usual undergrad emotional dramas because it was undergrad. And if you don't go through that in your teenage years, you kind of have to go through, go through it in your twenties. Um, or, or like, I think I was probably 19. I was probably like just getting the teenage stuff done. Um, so went uh, to a different university, did just a Bachelor of Arts. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I'll just do some electives. Um, remembered I liked creative, po- creative writing and did like a poetry class and a script writing class and stuff. Um, and also just some like literary criticism classes. Um, and kind of came back around to realizing I liked thinking about games and writing about games, not making games. So that was my interest in them. Um, so I kind of like realized that. So then, in like what the late two thousands, started oh. blogging about video games, started pitching articles places, and then I guess the rest is history. So I want to go back to all of that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> like sorry, I'm just no, 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 around. no. It's good. It's good. Um, like going there originally to sort of study game design and stuff. Was it? Did you move away? Like, so were you arriving kind of like? Because, you know, university is a chance to reinvent yourself and stuff. Did you come, like, with all your consoles, like, I'm going to meet video game people because I'm going to I'm here to make video games? Um, yeah. So, by that stage, my family lived in Toowoomba, which is about an hour and a half out of Brisbane, where I am now. Um, and I moved to Brisbane to do – I moved to Brisbane with a school friend uh, to do – to start undergrad. Um, this is after, like, I spent a year in Japan before this, but – 
I just didn't have any video games there, ironically. I spent 2004 when, like, all the most amazing Japanese PlayStation 2 games came out um, and didn't play any of them for years and years later, um, like Katamari Damasi and Shadow of the Colossus and all those. Just missed all of them because I was in Japan, which is the weirdest thing. Anyway, um, went to – yeah, so I moved to Brisbane to start. What consoles did I bring down? Would have just had my PlayStation 2. That would have been all I would have had. You know, and back in those days as well, it's kind of all you needed. I think my friend had an Xbox. I think he had a Dreamcast as well. Um, he mostly just played on his PC. But I think, yeah, I just had a PlayStation 2. Um, I forget the rest of the question. But, like, yeah, so did was, you did you go there? If you went there with a friend, then I'm assuming you weren't necessarily totally reinventing yourself, but you definitely sort of carried the, the game stuff with you. Right, yeah. I think it was like the opposite of reinventing yourself. So... This is something I think about a lot now that I teach game design. I think in Australia in particular, there's this whole weird kind of pressure to go straight to university after high school. Like, you're an adult now, you've got to go figure out your job, and three years later, you should be working. Um, and it's really messed up. Like, yeah, nobody wants to spend the rest of their life doing what 17-year-old them thought they wanted to do. Like, just go backpacking for a year, or like, work in a supermarket for a year, or do literally nothing for a year, figure out who you are, then go to university. Um, I didn't do that. I was like, I have to go to uni. What do I like? It's like, well, I like video games, so I should go learn how to make them. It's just like the worst kind of your hobby becoming your job when actually, and not being able to separate the two. Um, which, so I probably thought, at the time, I probably thought I was reinventing myself, but in reality, I was just doing the exact opposite and just kind of continuing on cruise control and just yeah. being like, yep. Video games are what I do, so that's what I kept doing. And it took me about 18 months to... Well, I also don't think the degree was very good. But one of my <laughs> colleagues now works at Ubisoft Montreal, so I, so that's incorrect. Clearly, I just yeah, I just decided this wasn't for me Yeah, and got out. And you, you also mentioned like all this kind of uh, emotional turmoil, like classic kind of teenage university stuff. Like, you don't have to tell me what that is, obviously. But would, did... did has have games ever kind of served a function to help with stuff like that if you're like going through a tough time like would you would you turn to games is there any games in particular that you can think of yeah i mean at that point in time i can't think of particular ones i was also really poor because i was going to uni so i probably didn't have many new ones i was probably i think i was mostly just playing san andreas um in more recent times i find like just cause 2 is like my chicken soup game that's a game where just like if I've had like a super shit day or I'm feeling ill or anything, I'll just kind of like curl up fetally on the couch and just put Just Cause 2 in the Xbox 360 um, and just grind a few more numbers, like demolish a few more bases or find a few more hidden objects. Because um, it's just a ridiculous amount of stuff in that game. It's just a big old bucket of content. Um, and it's just a very constant momentum sort of game. So I would just, just kind of just move through that and just without kind of stopping and you don't have to think about it you can just totally switch off and just just keep doing stuff because there's always more stuff to do uh, so that's definitely my like that's my chicken soup game i always call it that's a good but, phrase yeah. i might steal that brandon go for it cool that's your question now You're asking people what <laughs> i am yeah I, am. I always find that i awkwardly fumble around how to get to that question but no that's a much better way of putting it <laughs> um so so like while you're um at university and you kind of you go to a different university is it was a different university you went to yeah yeah so yeah i started at one and then 
Um, I mean, in part of a girl I really liked every time I went to the other one and I went over, went over because we were good friends and like the university she went to was this amazing, you know, proper sandstone grass courtyards kind of university as opposed to like shitty Australian 1970s <laughs> brutalist concrete buildings with bush turkeys running everywhere. Um, Did that work out like, wow, for you? Like a, uh, the university? The girl? Or, no, no, no. Okay. Um, no. I mean, we're still friends, but I was like, in hindsight, I was just like most revolting, just gamer gross dude who was like all bitter <laughs> about being friend zoned. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't good. What a cliche. Um, yeah, I, I, I well, was we've all been gross. there, Brandon. It's fine. Yeah, we've all been gross young gamer dudes. Yes. Um, but but yeah, but the university, I was like holy shit, this is like a real university. I just I just want to study stuff, um, and just yeah, just enrolled in a bachelor of arts, and it was good. Just did random electives kind of went into it knowing no one gets a job just because I did a Bachelor of Arts, but I was like, I'm not here just to get a job. I'm here to learn stuff and figure out what I want to do with my life. Yeah, so And apparently stuff. that was stay at university. <laughs> so, but like, you know, you're clearly still into to video games and stuff at, at this point, and you decide to start writing about them. Like, were you uh, were you kind of evangelical about games? Was, it, was there like a specific run of games or, or games that stand out to you? Like, kind of this is this is serious stuff. I need to be writing about this or, or even like, you know, a particular writer or academic that you might've stumbled on. Um, yeah. Like I feel like a lot of people at that point are like, wow, video games are like really exciting or really new or like whatever. Um, I, was pro- I probably had that mindset for a little bit. Um, I think mostly for me, I was doing like, I, I sent, I eventually, um, settled into like a writing major which was kind of just tacked onto the side of a cultural studies school um so i was mostly doing like film studies and literature studies subjects um and in these film studies subjects there were just these kind of really intense and considered critical engagements with just popular films right like just let's just talk about robocop and total recall let's talk about alien or you know you're like, wow, you can talk really intelligently and academically about these like blockbusters and stuff. And I, and you know, I was still, video games was still the kind of, I guess, primary creative form I was engaging with in my spare time. And I think I just got to the point where I'm like, so if you can do this with films, surely you can do this with video games as well. Um, how do I do that? Um, was pretty much the trajectory. So I ended up writing my honors thesis. Um, about Grand Theft Auto 4 using a whole bunch of theoretical stuff and kind of, I, I guess, like, I, I kind of come at writing about games academically as, even critically, I guess, as not as games are special or exciting or as an evangelist forum, but more just games are just another part of popular culture. They're not more or less important, but they are as important, which means they are just as worthy of critical engagement. Um so that's kind of, again, I wouldn't have had these words at the time, but that's pretty much how I got from, like, I want to do this, but for video games is pretty much has been the driving thought behind a lot of my academic writing. And, and was, like, I mean, you mentioned sort of GTA 4, like, were there any other kind of specific games or, or even why GTA 4 was, like, such a good case study? I mean, I suppose because it's so broad, there's so many areas you can look at it from, or so many angles. Yeah, so what I was writing about was like the relationship between the player and the playable character, um, but really trying to like complicate it a bit and talk about it as this kind of reflexive 
the player determines things about the playable character at the same time. The playable character determines things about the player rather than just the player is in charge or the player just uses the playable character. I was trying to do this complicated thing there, or at least it seemed complicated at the time. Yeah. I'd probably look at it now and be like, lol. Um, <laughs> but what, um, um, why GTA 4 was a good example is because GTA 4 is probably, if I had to choose a single favorite commercial video game, it would be GTA 4. Um, and um, I probably just destroyed one of your other questions. No, but, that's um, fine. Essentially, the difference between GTA 4 and the earlier ones in terms of Nico being his own character, um, his own character with his own concerns, his own troubles, his own, you know, problems and all that. Um, and the way in that game, and kind of in that game alone, I guess, in terms of GTAs, Rockstar really committed to that. And it was just a slower, more oppressive, darker game. Um, and it, one of the few examples of an open world video game where everything felt like it kind of worked together. So it felt less like, here's Nico's story, but also go bowling for 10 hours. It felt more like you're just kind of living Nico's day-to-day life, which includes going bowling with his cousin. And it all just kind of integrated really, really nicely. Um, and just for sheer meticulousness of that city and just for crafting of it is just masterwork in, the, in a in 3D environment creation. Um, so I was really entranced by GTA 4. I think it was probably one of the only games ever I went to a midnight launch for. Um, but, um, I mean, and it has its problems. I still cringe whenever I think of Roman saying, Roma, Roman, Roman, is that his name? Yeah. It is Roman, yeah. I cringe, yeah. I cringe whenever I think of him saying the word titties. I'm just like, no, <laughs> your games are terrible. It was all a mistake. Um, but there's just so much good in that game. Just like the sheer weight of that game, just the heaviness, the heaviness like throughout and in the atmosphere and in the cars and in, every, in the bodies is just spectacular. Um, so that's what attracted me to that game. It um, is one of those weird ones, though, like talking of the kind of the relationship with the the characters, but because it is so pronounced in in GTA Four, like there's for me anyway, like I, I found it to be really sort of dissonant in a lot of places. I mean, that's that that would be one of my sort of go to examples of kind of a, a game where the kind of the the pull of the story sometimes fights against what the player wants to do and it makes it a bit weird for me like they kind of leaned into it a bit more with gta 5 by giving you like specific characters with specific traits so go this guy if you want to just run around blowing stuff up and that kind of fits which i thought was quite an an elegant solution to it yeah like i think it's an interesting one because i think like my answer to that is if I mean, like, this goes against, like, basic design, which is, like, if you don't want your user to do something, make it impossible to do that thing. Whereas I kind of I kind of think of video games, or at least I did at that point. I still sort of do. Video games is primarily, like, enacted media. Like, you kind of take on the role as an actor when you're the player. Um, not a character, but an actor. Like, you're given a script, and it's like, here's what, here's what this is. You know, add your own flair to it. Yeah. Um, and I think being able to, like, do random shit in GTA 4 is great. But also, like, if you want Nico's story to make sense, you kind of have to make it make sense. If that makes, if, if that makes sense, <laughs> it does. Like, yeah, you have to choose not to go do a whole bunch of random shit. I guess for me, when I was playing, I would just be like, you know, I would save my game and then go on my killing sprees, like I would in Skyrim or whatever. Yeah, and then come back and be like, cool. That's you know, that was me just playing GTA. Now let's get back to Nico's story. Um, but even when it was like ridiculously on top, murdering dozens of people, it still. It didn't feel realistic, but it kind of felt 
I guess, all integrated into this guy's daily life in yeah. a way that I found really effective. But totally, like, GTA had already built up um, a very big reputation as this is the game where you just go to dick around in and then to do a sudden 180 and assume players wouldn't do that um, didn't didn't work for in the game's favor, for sure. Um, but you kind of see a trajectory from, like, GTA 4 to Red Dead Redemption to L.A. Noir, where they kind of went further and further down that path. Yeah, uh, I mean, they're all different studios, but you kind of see them. There's kind of a legacy there. Um, then GTA 5 is just, at the same time, you kind of see, like, Saints Row and everything coming up. And GTA 5 just feel like, actually, nice stuff. It. Let's just make a playground again, um, which I know a lot of people loved. I was kind of disappointed by because I found GTA 4's heavy open world, something I found really, really special. But, yeah, it's definitely, but, like, unique. The, like, that, that oppressiveness is really you don't get that very much in games and i guess you know there's a reason for that like people always talk about like fallout and stuff and how much they love fallout like i can't stand fallout because i just hate being in that world i find it really depressing and i don't yeah, like yeah. the colors and i don't i just don't like it at all but then i guess yeah you know, I, it depends on how you what you go to good video games for yeah i mean i gave up on fallout 4 because i mean i play every new elder scrolls so i'm like cool here's a new place but i played fallout 4 i'm like this is just more fallout free it's just more green apocalypse like i kind of felt like i'd already been there so i was like no i'm done so so when you did this this thesis of like how did um how did like your your lecturers and professors at the university how did they 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 see that were they kind of embracing it's like cool like this is a new thing like were they kind of i don't know hip to video games to use a terrible phrase um they weren't hip to video games so it was kind of at that point so this this would be like 07, 08, I guess, by this point. Um, I guess they, by this point they would have seen um, video games as, actually, no, God, it would have been like 2010 or so. Um, they knew they didn't know much about video games, but, you know, they were like switched on enough as like media studies theorists and you know, video games were important. Yeah. They just hadn't engaged with them themselves. Um, so which was fine. Like I felt like I knew video games pretty well. What I needed from my supervisors was people who knew the theory that I didn't know cause, yeah. because I was young. Um, so that, that was a fine relationship. They were able to ask me questions about the games and I could ask them questions about the theory and it kind of worked out fine. I guess I'm wondering like whether, like how you would have seen a route then. Cause you know, you said you, you sort of stayed in academia for a while after that and now you, you teach obviously. So like, how did you, think oh this is i could just carry on with this like how did you approach that because you have to kind of pitch your own phd right yeah totally um so i guess like from around the same time like i was also doing my by that point i was doing freelance game journalism i was doing game criticism i was pretty closely connected to like (laughs) the community that built up around the website critical distance uh that ben abraham from sydney started which still does a weekly blog roll of what people wrote about games this week um, there was, there was that whole crew started on Twitter and all that and kind of got in with them, been on Twitter for like eight or nine years now, which is revolting. Um, <laughs> and then, um, so like, so I had a community of people who wrote and thought about video games. They just weren't at my university. So, um, there were other grad students, there were other, um, writers, um, some academics, um, elsewhere and that's and so i kind of was building up that relationship beyond my university at the same time um so then when i finished my honors thesis and decided i wanted to do a phd um i knew some people down in melbourne i could contact um 
and I ended up moving to Melbourne to do my PhD at RMIT University with some supervisors who did know video game theory and did play video games and was much more connected to a real life community down there. And so was there was there any like goal in mind with the PhD or were you just sort of continuing on like well this is I just enjoy learning so I'm just going to continue learning you know? Yeah at that point I was just continuing like, I think or well, maybe even like but... just to add a bit to the question like were there specific games or were there things coming out that you were like oh this is this is a really interesting thing like like a, a burning kind of desire to, to write about certain things that perhaps weren't being written about elsewhere um all right I, th- I think to answer the first part yes i was just still learning um i think the majority of people who like do a phd right after their honors in australia are people who just haven't figured out what they want to do with their life yet um which definitely was me um and often those people realize oh wait what i want to do with my life is actually just academia this this is it um so I was still just like, I don't know, I guess I'll keep studying. And also my then girlfriend, um, now wife, um, was about halfway through her PhD. Um, so it looked like a good time. And then I started, then she entered her final year of her PhD writing her thesis. And I was like, what the hell? This is not what I signed up for. <laughs> um, but um, so that was fun. Um, yeah, but in terms of games, like I don't know if any games really inspired the PhD. Um, like at that point I was mostly – Something I was like trying to get away from was I felt I felt like game studies as a discipline really had its darlings. Like everyone wrote about World of Warcraft or everyone wrote about Second Life. Um, and I wanted to get away from A, just writing about the next big thing because that kind of ages your research really quickly. Um, and secondly, I wanted to – actually, the other reason I didn't just want to write about the next big thing was because you'd go to – again, this was the, like I want to do film studies but for games thing – you go to a film studies lecture in my undergrad and you're talking about a film from 1970 or 1980 and it's not a big deal. You don't have, you don't have to um, um, caveat that or you don't have to say, oh, this lightsaber looks pretty cool for its time. It's like, no, this lightsaber just looks pretty cool. Like it's like this 1920 German expressionism film still looks incredible. Yeah. Uh, it's not just good for its time. Um and I, and I kind of felt like frustrated by game studies and the game discourse where it was still very much, let's just keep looking forward, keep talking about the next thing um, with a very narrow sense of history, which is really like progressive sense of history rather than this game that came out in 1992 is still very good and still yeah. has something worth talking about. So I deliberately wanted to write about older games and I deliberately wanted to find game, write about really popular games because at that point I felt like game studies wasn't doing that. Like, I feel like no one was writing about Call of Duty or, um, God, what else? Um, something else. I'm looking at my games and blinking. Uh, what else did I write about? Final Fantasy VII. I had wrote an academic chapter on Final Fantasy VII and just felt like there were these really, really popular, primarily single-player games that had just been entirely inaccessible to, I guess, the previous generation of academics who hadn't grown up with them. Whereas academics my age and younger had grown up with them, so we could just be like, sweet, I'm just going to apply this theory of Donna Haraway's to this thing that happens in Final Fantasy VII 50 hours into the game. Um, like, you're not just going to stumble across that. Yeah. So these days, it definitely feels like there's a plenty of academics writing about popular games, um, and I feel like I don't have to do that as much as I did a few years ago, mostly because there's a lot of academics my age now writing about games. Um, 
Yeah, I didn't answer your question at all, sorry. You keep trying to get Not... me to talk about games and I just talk about <laughs> academia. No, no, that's fine, that's fine. Um, I tell you what, we'll do. I'll, I'll take a, a, a brief aside to do some relatively quick-fire questions. Um, so, Brandon, uh, if you had to play a game with death for your own mortal soul, what are you best at? Uh, Geometry Wars 2. I destroyed a um, 360 controller's thumbsticks because I played that game so much. What was your um, um, top score on, let's say, Deadline? God... Was that the time limit one? That was the, the two-minute uh, one, yeah. Jesus, I had a... It's been so long, but I want to say I was in like 100 millions. Okay, like, fair enough. I, I had this one game where just nothing could touch me, and like your multiplier gets so high, yeah, and it just keeps going and going and going, and afterwards it's like, am I dead? What happened? <laughs> um, but, um, but, then, but then Deadline was dead to me because I just could never get anywhere in the ballpark of what I'd done. Um, yeah. I really love it. Yeah, sometimes you just got in the zone and it was just a majestic, majestic Oh, it's thing. amazing. Like whenever I ask people that question, like in my head, I'm always answering like, Geometry Wars. Um, but I don't think yeah. I got the score that good, so I'm going to have to change it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and also... I, the, I, mean, I could be lying. I'm pretty sure it was It was, It was. was very high. I, 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 I can't remember specifically. It was... Yeah, no. And I'm sure I've mentioned it on the show before, so I'm not going to say it in case I contradict myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um and are you a, are you a competitive player? Like, have you been locked in? Was that the result of a, a high score battle, that massive score, or were you just enjoying the zone? Um, I think there was one other person that I was like really, really competitive with, which was Jason Killingsworth, who um, now works at Riot Games, but was the editor of Edge magazine for a while. Um, who is just the most ridiculously good twitchy game player. Uh, he's um. I think he's like the world record holder for um, Super Hexagon, maybe. Yes. Um, and um, he just he's just ridiculously good at all these games. Um, so we used to compete quite a lot in um, uh, Geometry Wars 2. Um, so that was really good. Do you find um, yourself getting competitive with games, though? Yeah, not as much as I used to. Um, I think the 360 days were definitely the highlight for me in terms of getting really competitive because I had a a good network of friends who were all on the leaderboards, like playing Trials Revolution or playing um, Geometry Wars 2 and Super Meat Boy times and all that. These days, not so much because I don't spend as much time getting good at games. Um, There's not as many, really, lot actually, now you mentioned those, because those were definitely like yeah. the, the glory games of kind of high score battles. Next Machina yeah. just came out recently is kind of is doing that yeah. for me. It's amazing. Yeah, cool. Um, I don't know that one, but um, yeah, the 360 was really like the whole. I guess it was v, it was Xbox Live Arcade, right? It was like yeah. all these like um, leaderboard climbing games. Uh, yeah, I don't really thought about how that isn't around anymore. Yeah. Um, I guess these days, like the main one, I'm super competitive in, but really only against myself is um, Nuclear Throne by Glambia, okay. like action roguelike game. Um, I play a lot of that, and I'm pretty good at it, but. There's people who are spectacularly good at that game who I will never get anywhere near. Um, and the leaderboards are still kind of broken on the PlayStation version, I think. So I don't know how good I actually am, but I know I'm not as good as most people. Um, but I've managed to loop a few times, like when I you know, show videos of myself playing to other people, like when I share videos from the PS4 to Twitter, they're like, what the hell are you doing? Or I didn't know if the game went that far. And I'm like, mate, I'm like 25% of the way through this game. 
There's just layers and layers. You're layers moonwalking of out of the room, going, "Yeah, no, I know." <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's weird that the, the the video thing because, like, you're able to see people who are just so amazing at video games, like all like SGDQ and um, that's just finished yeah, yeah. now, which is amazing. Like, and I think part that partly kind of makes you think, "Oh, I'm never going to be that good," but I'm sure in a much sort of realer sense, it makes everyone much better at games because just the yeah, the, the yeah. knowledge that you can do that, that that's possible, like that just elevates everyone immediately, I think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I used to rarely watch videos of people playing games, like Let's Plays and that were never really my thing. Um, I just, mostly just couldn't stand everyone starting with like, sup guys? It's like, ugh. But, um, <laughs> um, um, but then I started a full-time job and now I have Let's Play videos running all the time um, on my computer. But um, yeah, like Nuclear Throne, I could like never even get. So with Nuclear Throne, you get to the boss, you beat it, then it loops and then all these enemies are in places they shouldn't be and it gets ridiculous. Um, but I couldn't even loop a single time originally for like, I guess the first 50 hours I played that back in early access. And when I started watching videos of other people playing and people, are, I would never be as good as those people, but you kind of watch and you're like, oh, so that's how you meant to do that, or oh, that's how you should approach that. Um, and I got instantly better just watching other people play. I, ne- I never got as good as those people, but I was like, okay, cool. That, that's how you approach it. It was just like the tiniest things I never would have considered. Because um, you don't, I guess, yeah, I guess as kids, like when there was three of us, you'd probably like see each other do things and go, oh, yeah, cool. But these days, I primarily play video games in isolation. So I play single player games. I don't live in a share house. So. I don't really have anyone to kind of bounce that yeah. off. So videos have been interesting. Like, oh, okay, I guess that's a way to do it. And you see it all over. Like, I mean, I do, I, I'm a magician. Like, I, I, I love magic. And you see sort of kids on YouTube who are just doing breathtaking moves, like like card moves and card slides. And, and you see it in, like, you know, people, kids playing guitars and stuff. And I think it is just you, you get this real accelerated learning if you can literally watch like the best in the world and you know study their techniques like just from the comfort of your your sofa it's amazing yeah absolutely um right i'm, I'm doing a terrible job yeah. of quick fire questions like, some of the oh, all right listen i didn't actually have anything to say i just felt i thought i should be polite and i think we've got a little delay as well but let's we'll we'll work around it um oh, okay so what came you? Okay, has a game ever kind of consumed your life to the point where you've had to delete it from your system and get rid of it? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if to an extent, but I've had to actually delete it. No, yes, like Tiny Tower, sure. Um, yeah, Tiny Tower when it first came out, and then never seen like that kind of idle game, kind of yeah. grind fest kind of model before. I was just like immediately just sucked into it like i had no defenses against it um, <laughs> um and, and for all i was kind of cute i'm like wow i'm really really engaged with this um and it's a great game but like i think i got to a point where i had to delete it so i just so i would stop opening it that was that was definitely a thing um i guess the answer i was going to give before you said but um deleting it because i didn't delete it but like far cry 2 is probably the game that probably most I guess sucked me and hypnotized me when I when it first came out. Um, I didn't really know anything about it. I was just like, sure, open world and fire. So I grabbed it and it just like I was playing it on 360, which doesn't have auto save either. And it just that game just like completely sucks you in. And just like 
it's you're very easy you are very easily able to just completely commit to um I guess for simulation for lack of a better word. Yeah, I guess yeah, the way yeah. people do now with like battlegrounds or Daisy, like just like the sense that anything could go wrong at any time and you're just constantly on edge and you're just like crawling through the bushes like it's just a sl- like it's a game you want to play slowly um and i played it very very slowly uh, and very committedly and just yeah i think that's like three or so months where i just didn't touch a single other game i was just completely sucked into that one i'm starting to get that with the uh, breath of the wild at the moment um, yeah it's it's really good at doing that as well i've only just um, started it and it's already like it, it very rarely do games kind of just get into my head where i'm thinking about them when i'm not playing them but that's that's definitely yeah. doing that yeah i mean the, people like were joking about this on twitter because they both had fire but breath of the wild and far cry 2 are truly very similar games um just in the terms of um the tone of the atmosphere they're just kind of they're both very quiet games they're both just kind of they just stand back and just kind of let you figure it out yeah um and they're both also very good at making you feel like something could go wrong right now um like something could always like just procedurally go wrong in in a second um so they're both very good at like open worlds feel safe very quickly yeah um and those two never felt safe um they 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 do that very very well um well on the well i've I've messed the order up because we've been chatting but that's fine it's it's uh-huh. all it's all good good content um if if you are if you are prone to such things brandon and um, what was your worst rage quit your worst rage quit um probably nuclear throne at some point i think my vita definitely got i mean not hurled to the extent that i broke it but like thrown onto an adjacent couch or something um a fairly calm rage quit but like you know i still throw a vita um, <laughs> just get so worked up playing nuclear throne like you just really get into it and then it's over like in a frame it's just instantly you're dead the music cuts out and just for whiplash is just infuriating um <laughs> I, don't, I don't think i ever die in nuclear throne without swearing at the tv either which i don't think i do for any other game but i'm just like Ah, oh, it just makes me so mad. I know I always know exactly the mistake I've made as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, so that's, just that's what pulls you back. Like, Yeah, so I was just angry at myself. Um, but yeah, just, yeah. So I just die and I'm just like, no, and I just have to walk away. I think like, especially if like I've like a few bad runs in a row, I, I just get so mad at myself because I'm like, I'm, I know I'm better than this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. With the the kind of the the breadth of emotions that that video games are able to to evoke in people, um, one of the rarest is kind of uh, is laughter. So, Brandon, what what games have really made you laugh? What games made me laugh? Um, oh, that's a good answer to this, but what they are. Um, can I think about it for a second? You can you can delete the silence or whatever hmm. yeah if you want i want to think of a good one because I, I know there's, there's definitely ones where i've like laugh laughed um i guess while i think of that i guess a game i find funny but i don't know if i like laugh laugh at it is like borderlands 2 just has clever writing um and very clever comic timing just like it's, it's very good at setting up you know audio audio diaries are like yeah. just far enough to whatever so that they do a good job of like building up a joke and it pays off really nicely at different points 
So if I had to just choose a funny game, it'd be that one. I swear, I swear, games have made me laugh, and I can't think of any. Um, maybe I'm just maybe I have no soul. No, um, no, no. I mean, I, I purposefully ask everyone that question because it is kind of tricky, and it, you know, nothing immediately necessarily springs to mind beyond like you know adventure games, you know, Day of Tentacle and stuff. Because they, again, it's just a good script, though it's not necessarily the game. Yeah, I mean, probably like things like Minecraft and stuff probably like the open world games where i'm actually playing with someone and just something ridiculously bad happens and it's just really funny like as long as it happens to someone else um yeah so i've probably like laughed a lot in minecraft or probably not daisy i've probably never laughed in daisy um i think there there was one sorry there was a game a while ago was called um sleep is death by that guy who made a whole bunch of games jason rora previous previous guest on the show yeah right um and it was really hacky and one player was like the storyteller and one person was a player and you took it in turns the storyteller could place new objects or whatever it's amazing and game. my brother and i yeah it was really good it's kind of just like faded away which is sad um but my brother and i were playing the ui was uh, terrible in this early build we didn't know what we were doing and he just would like accidentally painted the whole room blue and then we and there was nothing left of a bed so when we decided the room had flooded and like <laughs> He got out of a bed and like sailed for bed off to another country. Um, and like we told this whole kind of, um, and, it, and it got really funny. I remember like we just got really, really absurd and we just kind of, kind of stopped fighting with the software and just were like, we don't know what we're doing. Let's just see where this takes us. Um, so I definitely remember laughing at that one. It's oh, such fun. a great game. And it like, just to fill people in like i spoke to jason way back at the start because i was such a fan of his and that kind of that that kind of um gameplay idea like the kind of essentially like improv or like concertina storytelling so one person plays the game and the other person is kind of making the game as they're playing it like that's such a good thing and it's just it, it never really took off i think because you know it's hard to set up i suppose but imagine something like that on a like on an iPhone, like kind of uh, asynchronous play, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, totally. Just back it and just, forth. It just, like. Yeah, it just needs somebody to kind of just kind of make it very much more user-friendly. And yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's an idea that's got much more to be explored for sure. Um, speak, speaking of you mentioned Minecraft a second ago. Like one of your, your, your projects on your website is this kind of proto-let's play where you just walked east in Minecraft, right, for like 60 days or something. Yeah, I did this whole. You've got a couple of, of these. I'm just curious of where they where they come from. Is that just like oh, I've got a fun idea? Let's do this. Yeah, like normally they're just like different ways to critically engage with games. Um, yeah, the Minecraft one was like a permadeath thing. Well, kind of permadeath. It wasn't really permadeath, but like beds weren't in the game yet. So the further I walked, the less likely I was ever going to do it again. Um, so I was just walking east and blogging about what I saw as I went. Uh, and that was great because um, that's kind of all I wanted to do in Minecraft anyway was go for walks and see what was yeah. out there I was never really a castle builder or anything like that um, yeah so that was that one I guess that one's like I've done an actual let's play of like a modern warfare trilogy because I mean that one was mostly because what I wanted to say what I wanted to point out in those games that I thought was interesting wasn't kind of broad overarching themes that you could easily get at in like 1500 words or 2000 words it was more the moment to moment design of a specific corridor or the placement of a window or whatever 
Um, so for that one, I decided to try my hands at doing a let's play so I could be like, so I could walk up to a wall and be like, look at this, look at where this window is placed. Um, I call that a critical let's play. So I guess it was, it was probably more like, I guess like a tour guide for the game rather than, um, you know, a normal let's play, which yeah. is just meant to be entertaining. This is kind of more of a lesson, I guess. Uh, They're really good. Started, like uh, that whole concept okay. as well is something that's really like there's there's so much there you know like uh, like someone like yourself like like an academic or a, a designer like playing through a game and like like a, a, i mean valve do actually with the director's commentaries really well um and yeah, i think yeah. some of the double fine games recently had like grim fandango and stuff had little commentaries which is great like to play along with yeah but getting that real like moment to moment yeah like minute kind of analysis is like you kind of just need to watch someone else do it and like see what's see what they see in the work um because i was always struggling to explain modern warfare like you know they're messed up games in terms of like this glorifying military stuff like there's a lot of there's a lot of obviously messed up stuff about them yeah um but there's also just a lot of really really well designed moment to moment stuff and just interestingly designed moment to moment stuff as well um but it just kind of and I, I just got fed up with trying to explain to people what I found good about it, so I just played them and showed people. And that, like, you, you sort of sparking off from the the kind of academic work. I, I mean, I guess I'm assuming here you you, you wrote a book about uh, Spec Ops: The Line as well. Like, what prompted you to do that? Um, I guess similar to the Let's Plays. Um, I might have even done, I think the book was before the Let's Plays, I think, maybe, I don't know. Um, that was a similar thing, like what I found most interesting about Spec Ops Line was a lot of moment to, well, actually, firstly, it was moment to moment stuff, but also this kind of really elegant kind of progression over the course of the game, this kind of building of tension and like the change in um, the protagonist character and stuff like that. Um and mostly I just started writing an essay about it and it became this 50,000 word write, less a write-up and more a write-through of, this, of the whole game. Like, I don't think you could use my book to kind of beat a boss you couldn't beat otherwise or anything <laughs> like that. But, like, but it really goes through the moment to moment and kind of calls out a whole lot of, you know, symbolic meanings and how things trace back to other things and all that. Um, if I wrote it again now, I'd probably write it like half the length. There's a lot of guff in there, but, um, yeah, that went pretty good. A lot of people liked it. Um, I got to meet, um, the team that made that game. I was backpacking in Berlin. They were like, yeah, come out to a bar and they made all my clothes smell like cigarette smoke, which is a real pain when you're backpacking. <laughs> such a, um, but I got to meet them. They were really nice. And I've met Walt William. Uh, one of the writers as well. Um, I think he's coming on the show in the next week or two, quite excitingly. But I've yet to play Spec Ops, so I need to to get out. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Well, like it's it's good. It's also terrible, but it's also very, very interestingly terrible. What's well, um, a book's worth of interesting? Clearly, yeah. Um, Austin Walker at um, Vice Waypoint asked me to write a little like five year retrospective on it. Um, I think last week or sometime. I was like, yeah, cool, I can do that. I like, I wrote a book on that game. I could write a retrospective for like twelve hundred words. And when I started writing, and I'm like, no, I'm just, I'm just going to end up writing for book again. So I had to like really <laughs> restrain myself to like only write twelve hundred words. And is that like, do, do you think 
that's because you kind of you focused on the game so much like or or is it like a, a product of the game being you know it, it's designed to be interesting and, and evoke kind of feelings and and questions in, in the player like do you think yeah. you could write books i mean i i know there's like boss fight books now where people are there's a lot of games books based on specific games like do you think you could do that with kind of any game given you know enough focus um sort of not in the same format but i wrote like the writing of from start to finish not every game can do that um every, again i guess not every game but i think a lot of games are interesting enough to be worthy of a book uh, and boss fight is really interesting because there's so many of their books come from very different angles um, like Darius's Jagged Alliance book is very, very different from Anna Anthropy's um, Zit book. Yeah. Um, but they're both spectacular analyses of those games. Um, so, yeah, so, like, you kind of need to pick the tools for the job, I guess. But most books probably have a book's worth of stuff interesting to say about them. Um, if I wrote another book about a video game, it would be... Part of me wants to write a book about binary domain. And I kind of started... Half started a project was with another critic um, years ago. It hasn't really gone anywhere. What's binary um, domain? That, that that doesn't ring any bells with me. Oh man, binary domain. Um, it's a cover shooter made by Sega, um, uh, by the same team that makes the Yakuza games. Um, and you just you just shoot a bunch of robots in Japan, um, essentially. But it's just got these really amazing thematic intelligent engagement with like themes of like post-humanism and cyborgs and what it means to be a human and uh discrimination it's just there's so much in there you start playing it and you're just like i think most people who start playing binary domain are just like what the fuck is brendan talking about um you're just like some gung-ho american dude shooting a bunch of robots in this really corny japanese game but then it just keeps going and you're like holy crap it's just it's so smart but like i don't want to ruin anything because it just you think you know exactly where it's going to go and it knows that you know, it knows that you think you know where it's going to go and it just totally plays on that and goes somewhere slightly different. Um, I love it. It's one of my favorite games. I've just looked it uh, up actually. I do, I do remember it. That, that seemed to come and go with the, that, that it's got kind of alternate stories, right? Depending on the way you play it and stuff. A little bit. There's this whole like people like you more and less depending on what you do. Yeah. Um, and some of them like, and that can kind of slightly change outcomes. I think I've played it from start to finish two or three times and I've always had the same outcome. So, like, I, I don't think it deviates hugely, but I think there's little, sometimes a character dies or not. Um, but it's just really smart. But the main thing that was re- keeping me from writing a book about it is I didn't just want to write another book about another third-person story-based shooter because it would just be the same book as Killing is Harmless, just about a different game. Um, I think for years now I've been thinking about writing a book about uh, Driver San Francisco, uh, which is another spectacular game, but would, but it's like an open world driving game, so that would require a very different approach. So I have, I actually did some interviews with some of the developers for it like a year or so ago, but I haven't taken that anywhere yet. I should probably pitch it to Boss Fight. <laughs> um, so, so how how did you make the leap then from doing like the the journalism stuff and um, academia into actually sort of teaching game design yourself? Um, it's a pretty, um, natural progression. So I guess when you're an academic, when you're doing a PhD in Australia, at least it's pretty common to do some like sessional yeah. undergrad teaching, uh, for your supervisor or not or whatnot. Um, and then once you graduate, once you get your PhD, 
chances are you're not going to walk right into an academic job. So normally what you do after that is keep doing sessional teaching and keep doing publications on your own dime and hope you're employable eventually. Um, so I was doing that and I got offered through people I know here in Brisbane. They needed a new game. Design. Well, back up what, where I was doing my PhD at RMIT in, in Melbourne uh, one of my supervisors was the director of the game developers undergrad program. Um, so he just got me some teaching of a game development degree, uh, which was a little stressful, um, a little scary since I didn't like, you know, I didn't make games. I was like, oh, what, what yeah. can I possibly tell these students that is useful? Um, but the actual, like, the soft skills of being able to critically analyze a game and think about how a game might express something was something I was very much able to teach even if I couldn't tell them how to use blender or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. which like that's not what they needed me for um, so then when I moved back to Brisbane um, a few years ago um, I just got another job teaching game design after my PhD which is what I'm still doing while I am essentially waiting for a university to pay me money to do research again and what like what sort of research do you just mean like like I don't know what that would entail is it I'm going to say, like, just writing essays, but obviously there's more to it than... I don't mean to trivialize it again. Yeah, well, like, most academic positions would be, like, X percent teaching, X percent research. So, like, you're expected to spend, let's say, three days a week on your teaching commitments and two days a week on your research commitments, which means getting articles published in journals, working on books, uh, going for grant proposals, all that kind of stuff. Uh, my research until now has primarily been essentially just about reading stuff and then and playing stuff and then writing stuff. So very kind of theoretical, nearly almost philosophical kind of research. Yeah. Uh, the research I'm doing now going into the future is more looking at the development side. So it'll, it'll involve much more talking to developers and researching craft and practice and stuff, especially on developers who aren't necessarily in the games industry. So like, part-time developers and hobbyists and alt games and all those kind of people and like trying to better theorize their craft and why they do what they do. So that will require me to actually go speak to people and do some ethnography as well. Um, That's interesting. Like I I did, um, occasionally I'll do like a a kind of special uh, episode where it's just like about something about a theme. And I did a one, two or three months ago, maybe probably longer than that about those exact people it was just people who were like you know doing game development on the side or just starting out or like graduated students and stuff and i, I found it really yeah. interesting because part of it is because the tools are kind of so democratized now like the sense i got from some of them was it, it, it's just, it, like starting a band you know it's just whatever it's a fun yeah, exactly. way to to be creative and collaborate with yeah. people and stuff totally um it's absolutely that and it's something we don't often we very broadly when we like think about who makes video games it's a side we don't often think about uh, we often think about video game development as very um formalized and very commercial i mean and, it kind of um, has been for a long it, time it is it's quite a new thing totally. yeah i mean like it's kind of more like you know there's always been homebrew and modding and stuff but in terms of being able to like just chuck a game on the internet and like make it visible to other people around the world that's a fairly new thing and for that game to be legal for it not to be like a ROM hack of Super Mario or whatever. Um, so yeah, so it's a very, it's a fairly new thing and there's like massive new scenes building up, but it creates all these tensions as well where like you chuck your little game on Ichio, you charge a dollar for it and then 
gamers who think they're getting like, you know, a consumer project, not like chucking a dollar in your hat while, while you're busking, you know, they expect a certain level of, you know, professional mm-hmm. product ever. But that's obviously not what you're getting from like kids in their garage. Um, so it's kind of creating these weird tensions there with the differences between expectations and why people make things. Um, but it's super fascinating. There's like, it's exactly like just starting a band in your garage. And nowadays the tools exist that you can do that. You don't have to be some hardcore programmer. Absolutely. No, just, just to chuck some stuff together. Um, like I've been trying to make this year. My goal is to make 50 games in, in the year, um, which I've fallen behind a little bit, but I've, I've made 20 something or maybe just 20. Um, and the point there is just make a bunch of small things and just get better at the tools. Just, learn the processes um and i find in my students once once i get away from the idea that every game has to be like a consumer product worthy of being put on steam or whatever you can just make a bunch more shit and once you can make a bunch more shit you're going to get better at making games a lot faster yeah like and i do think like like, itchio does serve that function well like you know talking about the the kind of the the conflict um yeah. like part of that is like to use the the band analogy again like if you go and see a band at a, like upstairs of a pub or something you you know there's a certain expectation you have as opposed to going to see like a band in a stadium or something and so it's, it's yeah. just it's finding the right venue and i think like itchio i think pe- most people who would go to itchio and download stuff would assume a certain level of you know that they would understand what they were getting if you know what i mean yeah yeah totally the, the the rise of it has been like really really important for yeah. kind of affording a whole lot of that absolutely so how has the process of of kind of trying to make games like changed your understanding of games i suppose um, if it has yeah this is something i've been thinking about a lot um i don't have an answer yet maybe a little bit um but i probably also like because i was teaching game design and and that was like in classrooms where Unity was being used for several for a couple of years already. It's probably done it on a much more fine grained level than yeah. I was expecting. Um, I think the main thing now is like when I think about video games and how we how we crit- critique video games, I like think of like it's not rare to watch like a film, a piece, an essay about a film, and they'll talk about the characters, they'll talk about the narrative or the plot, and then a second later they'll be talking about. Um, what kind of camera they used or like the film stock or the fact it was raining on that day and the actor was grumpy. And there's just this like these different insights you get in film criticism that you rarely see in video game criticism. And partly that's because a whole lot of stuff is hidden behind non-disclosure agreements or yeah. in corporate games. But like part of it's just material. Part of it's like we don't know how game engines work. We don't know so instead of being so often we're like we as in critics and players there'll be something like bad in a game or we're like that is so obviously bad how on earth did that happen and often the answer to that question is actually super fascinating like and like it might be steve was sick that day and hadn't committed his changes and someone else needed to do something and the publisher was like we need to do this today so get it done and then it got done and like there's, there's often these like really human grubby stories for why the obviously broken stuff in games is obviously broken. Yeah. Like they're covered in these like greasy fingerprints of the people who made them. Um, you just got to kind of know where to see them. Uh, 
So I'm increasingly fascinated at trying to see those grubby fingerprints, I guess, on the games that I play and seeing them less as these dehumanized, sterile artworks, but more just like these messily human things that human beings made. Yeah. Um, and because they're virtual, it's often easy to forget that. Um, so I'm just increasingly fascinated by like stories about games development and just for weird, weird reasons, things are how they are in different games. That's and I think that's because I'm more interested in, and I think that's because I'm more interested in learning the engine and like now I know why the weird things are weird in my own game as well. I guess. <laughs> um, so like just sort of over the past sort of I don't know five or six years or so, like uh, have there been any kind of standout games for you that you've just sort of completely blown your mind? Like, are you still as excited about games now as you ever have been? Yeah, like I'm definitely taking a step back from my like big blockbuster games, especially because I'm like kind of trying to commit the time I would spend playing games to making games now. Um, but the main one from like the last five years, it's I think it's still within five years. Let's say it is um, would be Alien Isolation is probably still my favorite out of like those big the larger games. Um, just the it's kind of like this anti blockbuster game in terms of like it just breaks all the rules of what a blockbuster game is meant to do in terms of like be fair, make you feel powerful, make you ultimately give a satisfying ending and all that, let you save whenever you want, don't inconvenient the player, don't let the player get stuck. And Alien Isolation is like, no, screw that. That's not how an Alien <laughs> video game should work. Um, and you play it and you just, you just see like, this is why every other Alien video game is bad because they stuck to the tenets of like good video game design. Whereas Alien was just like, whereas Alien Isolation is just like, if, if you're actually being chased by you know a xenomorph like in the films you would be screwed like you would just be screwed so here is a game where you're just screwed all the time <laughs> um and because and so the alien is kind of controlled by this like procedural ai so like you, you know you die you reload it's not going to be in the same place it might have gone this time maybe it's chosen to wander over there or like it's never clearly defined what it does and doesn't know so it started all these rumors where you'd and I still don't know if these are true or not, where like apparently if you throw like flares too often to distract it, it'll start running to where the flare was thrown from instead of where you threw it to. And like that could be true, it could not be, but like that is a terrifying thing I now think about the alien in that game because it's just so unpredictable and you don't have the comfort of knowing a designer told it to do this thing. Like it feels like being in Jurassic Park after the electric fences fail. Um, you're like this is a human designed experience. And then they just put this monster in here. Yeah. And just, and you might get stuck and lose half an hour of save. That might happen. So be it. <laughs> um, and, I, and, I, and I find that kind of commitment to the experience that we're going for just really spectacular. Um, yeah. That's, that's easily probably this generation really of console, like on my PlayStation four, that's probably still the game that most stands out to me. Um, and you're and you're excited about the the future of games. Yeah, of, yeah. of games. Um, yeah, definitely. But mostly because of the hobby alternative stuff we were talking about before. Um, there's just so much new exciting stuff happening there. Um, people just making stuff that no one in the past has ever even considered doing. Um, and that makes me really excited. Um, there's just a lot of new kids. Um, just making shit unlike anything we've seen before. Yeah. 
it's it's just tricky thing. though like it's, it's to sort of shift your perspective um like and this has come up on the show a whole bunch of times but like the idea that there's there's so much stuff being made um and you know it's impossible to keep up but that's that's true of kind of every other art form as well but just you don't necessarily have access to it all whereas with games they're all in the same places essentially so it feels like you're missing out when you're not really it's just you know you find what you find yeah totally um yeah there's much fewer platforms so we're all kind of like squished in together yeah. which is a really interesting point um yeah but like there's going to be more tensions more people going oh but is that really a game or whatever and it's like meanwhile new kids are just going to keep making cool stuff and and that's great like yeah um i think there's i'm regularly i think every like month or so just some individual just releases a single thing and maybe i'll play it for five minutes or maybe i'll play it for several hours and it just but it'll, it'll just astound me it'll just, it might be a single trick or a single joke little game it's like this is incredible um i'm gonna put so you on the really spot and ask you to think of an example if you can um ian mcclarty's catacombs of solaris um ian mcclarty is a developer down in melbourne um and catacombs of solaris s-o-l-a-r-i-s is on itch.io um and it's just this like multicolored oh god how do i describe it? just a multicolored corridor and you walk walk around in first person but every time you stop and start walking again i don't want to ruin it but essentially just warps all the colors in a really trippy cool way and that's a single trick but like you kind of just keep walking around and you figure out how it's doing what it's doing and then you start kind of playing with it and making it do what you want it to do rather than be random um and it's dizzying and kind of sickening but it's just like it's a single simple trick but just pulled off so well that it's just really exciting that's amazing i'm gonna check that out um, yeah it's really good i think we've covered pretty much everything brandon but if there's anything that kind of hasn't come up that you wanted to mention and um, please take this opportunity now or if you want to i don't know let people know where to find you on the internet if you want people to find you on the internet and do that too um yeah no that really covers me i guess um best place to find me on the internet is probably either my website which is brkeo.com so b-r-k-e-o-g-h.com um or on twitter which is the same name brkeo uh, where i tweet way too much sometimes about games um, <laughs> those are the easiest ways to kind of follow any of my writing or thinking or whatnot um i actually just today put up the transcript of the, the research i presented down at digra last week which is on ways to think about all those kind of alternative video game developers so if I'm anyone's interested in the conversation that might be worth reading it's a little academic but apparently it's good people tell me so good <laughs> let's go was that yeah, was that uh fun for you brandon was that okay yeah, yeah that was great cool
get lost, lost in each other's arms. Let's get lost, let them send out alarms. And though they'll think us rather rude, let's tell the world we're in that crazy mood. Let's defrost in a romantic mist.